You're listening to The Bloodline with LLS. We'll be joined by experts who will help us understand current issues and resources available to those diagnosed with blood cancer. Holidays and, you know, those things are, are, mean so much more now than they did prior to cancer entering our lives. This may potentially be a cure for some patients. We'll also be speaking with patients and caregivers who will share their cancer journey with us to better understand life after diagnosis and let you know you're not alone. Beforehand, my job was to earn a living for my family. My wife said to me, your job now is to live. And that's what I'm doing. I'm living my life the way I want to live it. And I'm really enjoying it. It's a much more fulfilling life. Everything that I knew, I didn't know anymore. That defense mode. We're survivors. Like... But they're probably not the questions that you want answered. So, yeah, writing them down for us is important because of our chemo brain. Let's get started. Welcome to the Bloodline with LLS. I'm Alicia, and I'm Lizette. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode. Today, we will be joined by Karma Byland, Associate Professor at the University of Florida, who will be speaking with us about effective communication between patient and clinicians. Karma, can you tell us more about your background and what brought you to this field? Hi, Alicia. Thanks for having me. My background is in communication studies, which is a field of social and behavioral science that studies how people communicate with each other on an interpersonal level. During my graduate work, I became interested in how that kind of communication plays out in the healthcare field. So I spent the last 16 years working in this field. Most of that time I have spent in working in hospitals or academic medical centers, working really directly with doctors and nurses, particularly in cancer care. It's interesting because we know that effective doctor-patient communication is such a central clinician function. Could you tell us the importance of developing good doctor and patient communication and the impact that it has on quality of treatment? Yeah, I think there's a number of reasons why we, from a research perspective, know that communication really impacts good quality of care, speaking broadly. First of all, we know that patients are much more satisfied when they feel like they've had good communication with their physicians. Secondly, good communication really begets more good communication. By that, I mean that If a doctor approaches the consultation with good communication, that's going to lead to better communication from the patient, which is going to lead to overall better understanding and hopefully better recall of the things that were talked about. This then all, we hope, leads, and we know from the research, leads to better adherence. So better adherence to treatment, uh, to recommended lifestyle changes, and all of those things tie back into some of the important issues we see in healthcare in terms of uh, limited resources, cost savings, and quality of care. Also, physicians are often interested to know that there's good research showing that doctors who have good communication are less likely to have malpractice suits brought against them. That's important. So, Karma, do you think that there is a difference between how doctors view the way that they communicate versus how a patient might view their communication? That's a really good question. I think I think there are many physicians that I've met who really believe communication is important. 
Um, often what happens, especially for physicians who have been practicing for a long time, is that they receive some training in communication when they were in medical school or perhaps in residency. And then they got really busy with their practice and they developed certain practices of communication, certain habits, certain styles, some of which may be effective and some which may not be effective. And they don't really have the time that, that that's necessary because of their busy clinical schedules to really be mindful and, and reflect on their communication practices. One of the things I've found working with experienced doctors is that when they come to one uh, to a course on communication, they really appreciate that time away from busy clinical practice to talk to other people about communication challenges, to learn new ideas, and to practice skills in order to improve their own communication. I know that a lot of the patients that reach out to us, they usually say that um, they're not comfortable speaking to their doctor. They have 15 minutes and they feel that their doctor does a really good job in telling them their test results, uh, their blood counts, but they don't really get into any quality of life issues. Is there a way that we can make patients more comfortable in bringing forth questions about their quality of life, telling their physicians about issues or barriers that they might have? I think for patients, I would suggest that they really think about the doctor-patient relationship as a meeting of two experts. So we often think of the doctor as the expert, and certainly the doctor is the expert in, uh, in the medical treatment, having that knowledge and having years of experience with patients. But the patient is also an expert. The patient is an, an expert in, in himself or herself. The patient knows how he or she is reacting to the treatment that's going on. The patient knows his or her own social situation. And so I think when you, when you can think about the interaction of, as, in that way as a meeting of experts, it can help with that feeling of, of maybe feeling like it's not appropriate to bring these things up. I think that for some patients, they still feel like there's this kind of authoritarian model in, in the doctor-patient relationship, and so they feel like they're in kind of a less powerful position, and they're not really controlling the interaction. And certainly, those time limits make it difficult, and I know patients are very sensitive to that, and so I think often they do, like it sounds like you're saying, put off talking about these things that are really important to them. One one suggestion I would have that that fits into some of the physician and patient training that we've done is something called agenda setting. So when we work with doctors to train them to be better communicators, we talk about just taking 15 or 30 seconds at the beginning of the consultation to say, here's here's what my plan is for us to discuss today. We encourage the physicians then to say to the patient, is there anything else you want? However, if a patient's doctor isn't doing that, I think it's perfectly appropriate for the patient to try to do a little agenda setting also at the very beginning and just to say, you know, I know we have a limited amount of time today. I did have a couple of questions I wanted to make sure that we could get to. And letting the doctor know that up front, there's a phenomenon in the in the medical literature called the doorknob disclosure, which means that the physician thinks the visit's over thinks they've covered all these things you mentioned. The physician puts um, his or her hand on the door to leave, and the patient says, by the way, doctor, 
I've been really depressed lately. Or, by the way, doctor, you know, is there anything I can do to um, to help with my anxiety? Or brings up some issue that's very important from maybe a more psychosocial or quality of life perspective that they were nervous to bring up, perhaps, or felt like they couldn't bring up during the consultation. And then it's kind of like this last-minute Hail Mary, like, before you leave, I'm going to throw this at you. So agenda setting, whether it's happening from the doctor or the patient or both, helps to just get those issues out there uh, at the beginning, uh, or at least to alert the doctor that there's this issue that they want to discuss. That's true. We're choosing this physician. So if our physician isn't providing us with all the information that we need or in a way that we understand it, I mean, isn't it okay to shop around? Um, We shop around for cars. We shop around for houses. But we tend not to shop around for medical treatment. Is that something that you've experienced that people just will go to to the physician that's assigned to them or uh, not question? One of the big issues is not getting second opinions. Right. Yeah, it's a, it's interesting because what the literature shows that patients refer um, rate their doctors usually very highly in terms of satisfaction. But then qualitative research, if you do interviews with patients and you talk to them, you find out that there's actually all these things that they're not happy about uh, with their physician or with their communication. And and there's some there's some rationales patients make in their own mind. You know, well, this doctor is the best at this. So, you know, I don't care if he can't communicate well. I I trust him. You know, I, I want this best treatment. He's published lots of papers on this. And so they rational, rationalize that. I think obviously it's going to depend on the patient. I mean, for some patients, having a good relationship and feeling really comfortable with their physician is going to be important, um, where it might be less so for, for other patients. But I personally, I, I do think, and, and just from what we know from the literature, is that it's important to have a physician that you feel comfortable with and that you feel comfortable uh, talking about your your concerns, talking about what your preferences are, that you feel comfortable asking questions to. So I would say that if you have the ability and the time that you're able to, to try a couple of different physicians, then I would think that that would be really appropriate. That's so true. I remember on one of our episodes, um, Monica Bryant, she's a lawyer over and co-founder over at Triage Cancer, and she was saying, you know, a doctor really can't give you the best treatment if you're not completely open with him. And it's kind of like the patient thinking, okay, well, this doctor should help me, tell me everything that I need to know. But he can't or he, he or she can't necessarily do that if he doesn't know what information to work with. Yeah, I agree. And I think, you know, Communication, we, we talk about in the field of interpersonal communication is that communication is transactional, that we influence each other while we're talking. And so we see this from the literature. Doctors may have kind of some tendencies towards things, but if you look at the research, doctors' communication practices do change somewhat depending on the type of patient that they're with. Okay, They don't, like, completely change from, 
black to white or anything, but, but they, there is variability. So patients who are asking more questions, who are expressing their concerns, who are checking their understanding, patients who are really active do elicit better information from their doctors and are able to get more of the things that they need. It's very important. I think it's a two-way street. And, you know, like both of you are saying that, you know, I always assume my doctor knows that I'm having the side effects from the medication because they're the typical side effects that most people have. So my doctor should be talking to me about ways that I can help my side effects. Um, But I'm assuming that, you know, she knows that. But that's not true. I, I need to actually let her know what I'm feeling. And it's really teamwork. And a lot of the physicians that have spoken for our telephone web education programs has said, you're part of your treatment team. And people tend not to know that. They say my treatment team is my doctor, my nurse, my social worker, um, if I have any type of navigator, but they don't see themselves as part mm-hmm. uh, and a very important part of their treatment team. Is it okay for a caregiver to actually speak to the treatment team? So how I see it is that all of that needs to be negotiated with the patient. So, I mean, there's certainly there's HIPAA rules and confidentiality rules and those things that that have to be addressed. If the patient has agreed and the patient is comfortable with that, then certainly um, from the perspective of, you know, when we talk with physicians about this, it does get tricky for physicians sometimes, though, because when a caregiver is very dominant and is doing all the talking and the interaction, it's very natural, understandable, and easy for a doctor to focus all their attention on the caregiver. And so one of the things we talk to doctors about is how how do we address those caregivers and, and validate their efforts, yet still remember that that physician-patient relationship is really important. In school, I, I studied behavioral science, and, you know, in that field you learn that communication skills involve both style and content and how attentive listening skills, empathy, use of open-ended questions, you know, are some examples of skillful communication. What are other ways that either clinicians can better communicate with their patient and, and ways that patients can better communicate with their clinicians? So let me, I'll start with the clinicians. So there's, there are a lot of established communication skills, education or enhancement programs for physicians done by different organizations and different hospitals. I think what they all kind of boil down to are a couple of things. One is that whenever we communicate, there's content, right? There's things that we want to get across that we need the other person to understand. But on top of that, there's also what's called the the relational message. So we have a content message and a relational message. Relational messages usually tend to be more nonverbal and are more about how we how we orient ourselves when we're talking to the other person, what our eye contact is, how we uh, use our tone of voice, laughter, all of those things go into the relational message. But with the content message, I think there's really three things that we talk about with physicians. One, one are things having to do with structure. So how are we structuring the consultation? We talked a little, I talked a little bit before about setting an agenda at the beginning. And another part of structuring giving information is 
is is just how how the physician presents the information to the to the patient. So using what are called road signs, uh, th- saying things like first, second, and third, using some preview statements. I want to talk to you today about a couple of treatment options that are available for you or there's three side effects that you're most likely to get from this medication. Naming those, summarizing it after you say it, writing it down for the patient. I think what's easy for f- physicians to forget, especially because when they've given information, the same information two or three hundred times, a thousand times, and what I, I should say not just physicians, but it's easy for all healthcare providers, I think. It's so ingrained in their minds that they might go through it fairly quickly. They might not explain it fully. And so stepping back and remembering that the patient is hearing this for the first time. So even though the doctor has heard it many times, the patient has heard it for the first time. So thinking about structure is, I think, really important for communication for doctors. And then thinking about how to elicit information from the patient. So going back to that model of, you know, where the doctor is the expert and the patient is also the expert. So making sure the patient has a voice, asking questions of the patient, checking the patient's understanding, giving the patient time to ask their own questions is all really important. And then the, the third part of this content, I, this content type of communication, which I think actually starts to move us into the relational pieces, empathy, is just relating to somebody else on a human level. A lot of my research has been in through observation of doctor-patient interactions, um, whether that be through video recording or audio recording or sometimes just reading transcripts. And we tend to see this, these relational connections or this, this empathy happening in terms of often in that, that social talk at the beginning, I think particularly in cancer care where people develop relationships over a significant amount of time, there is some element of of friendliness that happens, of learning about each other, a little bit of self-disclosure. And so we can see empathy happening there. Uh, Empathy also can happen, you know, in, in terms of just validating and acknowledging difficult things the patient is going through. So those are the three things we tend to talk about kind of in the verbal piece of the communication the or the content piece, the relational side, how we say things, how the doctor talks to the patient. If if the doctor's turned around looking at the the screen the entire time versus making that eye contact, as we were talking about with the caregiver, if they're oriented to the caregiver instead of the patient, if the doctor stands up rather than sitting down. There's a whole host of things non-verbally that also really make a, a big difference. The work that I and others have done in terms of trying to educate patients to be better communicators uh, can be easily put into the simple acronym this, that was developed by Dr. Don Sagala, who's from Ohio State University, and he calls it the PACE acronym, so P-A-C-E. And The P stands for presenting information. So we talk with patients about how it's really important for them before they go to the visit to really think about what information they need to present. So to think about if they're having symptoms, if they're having side effects, when are those happening? Um, What's the intensity of them? Is there anything that makes them go away? 
so that they can be prepared to, to give that information when the doctor asks. The A stands for asking questions. We've already talked about this a little bit, I think, but that's for patients to really to know that they should ask questions and know that their doctor expects that. So asking questions about uh, whatever it is, their quality of life issues, psychosocial issues, treatment issues, whatever questions that they have. The C stands for checking understanding. This is also something we do with doctors. We have them check the patient's understanding. But for patients, it's really important, too, that they check their own understanding of things. So this might be uh, that they want to clarify something. Doctors often use words that we would call jargon, so words that are part of their medical language, and they don't always consider that the patient might not know what those mean. So if a doctor uses a, a jargon kind of term, the patient then can uh, or, sh or should really say, oh, I'm sorry, I don't know what you mean about by that. A really simple example, it's not cancer-related, but is diabetes-related, is that doctors will sometimes say blood glucose instead of blood sugar. And not all patients are going to understand that those are the same things. So checking your understanding as the patient, trying to clarify if you don't understand something. And that can also be done by repeating back or summarizing. I find I do this in, in, in lots of interactions I have with people, especially uh, when, when I've been given some instructions and I'm not entirely sure I understand. I like at the end to say, okay, so this is what I'm going to do. And I list the things. Is that right? And I think it's so important for that to happen. Ideally, we'd like the doctor to be able to ask the patient to do that, but that's not always happening. So the patient should feel comfortable just saying that at the end, checking that understanding. And then the E stands for expressing concerns. And I think this is the hardest one for patients. If there is a treatment plan that they're not comfortable with or if they have concerns about some issue, even as small as like the time or date of the appointment, that they express that concern to the doctor. One of you was saying earlier, I think, with, uh, with another guest you had, the doctor is not just going to know those things. Or no, it was, Lizette, you were saying with your own doctor, realizing the doctor's just not going to know those things. We need to be able to to express what concerns that uh, what concerns that we have. So that's the acronym P A C E, the PACE acronym. You, there's a website about it too. But I found that to be a really useful way to talk to patients about communication skills and to uh, to help them to better their own communication. And that's so true. I mean, here at the LLS, we encourage patients to gather, you know, gather questions or any articles or, you know, any materials that they have before a visit that helps them to better prepare for the visit. And if we advise patients to or caregivers to visit www.lls.org forward slash what to ask. And on that page, it's, it's a list of printable question guides where they can, you know, just bring it with them to the doctor and instead of rustling and and trying to remember everything that they wanted to ask serves as a way to have everything in one place. And we also just recently created a, a calendar that but it allows people to, you know, write in the days that they're supposed to take their medications. And there's a note section for them to, you know, write anything that they, you know, they, they need to jot down a reaction to a medication, you know, 
a less dig of numbers of their of their healthcare team. So we definitely see that organization also helps patients feel confident, you know, when they're speaking with their doctors. Yeah, I think that preparation is is key. In fact, interestingly, some of the research is actually uh, works with patients. They have a coach who works with patients before they go into their visit to help them work through some of those things and think about what they're going to ask and what they're going to say. So that's planned. That's planned ahead. I know for me, I it, it's easy for me to forget the things that I wanted to talk about. So I I make lists and take those in with me when I go to see a doctor. Same here. <laughs> Same here. <laughs> Just really quick, I know that Karma, you mentioned that if the doctor is sitting or standing, um, mm. I heard once that if you actually say to the doctor in your appointment, oh, can you take a seat? I, I have a question that that actually gets you a lot more time with the doctor. Is that true? I don't know. I've never seen a study that's looked at that. But, but well, there's there's some other studies, though, that are really interesting. There have been some randomized trials that randomize doctors and nurses in an inpatient setting to either stand or sit when they come into the room. And it's I find it fascinating. The perception of patients is that the, the clinician stays longer in the room when they're sitting, when in actuality there's no significant difference in time. So there is certainly something about sitting. And it may be from the patient's viewpoint, too, that that even if it's the same amount of time, if the clinician sits down, the patient just feels more comfortable. Because certainly, you know, I mean, one of the reasons it's important for the doctor to sit down is because it tries to bring that power imbalance, you know, into some equality. You're sitting down, you're looking at eye level. It's very difficult. I think we've all been there when you're sitting on an exam table or you're sitting in a hospital bed and somebody's towering over you. That really tends to... I think accentuate this kind of power imbalance that that some people perceive to be there as patients and may make them more more comfortable or make that makes them more uncomfortable. So for doctors to sit down, I think may just it may make the patients think they're there longer. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I know okay. when I tend to go to the doctor, I don't ask that many questions. I, I never have, and. Working with Alicia, who feels a lot more comfortable <laughs> asking doctors um, questions, and she's brought to light that, you know, that's that's part of the interaction. That's part of my appointment. You know, I have questions, and um, I'm there to get the answers. And never before had I started writing down. Now I have my little stickies that I go in with um, to ask the doctor those questions because I know that I'll forget if I don't bring them in. But I find that I, you know, I, I just had my appointments and then I would go out and I, and I would say to myself, well, I was wondering about this and I guess I should have asked. But in talking to somebody that's in a generation that feels more comfortable, I think, I mean, Aren't you more comfortable, Alicia? You're always asking questions. <laughs> it's part of your appointment. And yeah. I never thought of it that way. Yeah, because in my mind, I see it as, I mean, I don't, I don't know the information. This person, you know, studied this and, and has years of knowledge about this field. So in my mind, I'm like, let's go in. Let's go in and figure this out together. So 
I mean, we were talking on an episode again, a previous episode with a young adult who was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma, and she would she compared her experience with her doctor to her grandfather's experience. Now, how her grandfather, you know, would go in, not ask any questions. There's, and we spoke about there being a, a generational gap between the two and how that may play a, a role in that. Um, but I definitely think it's important to, to voice to voice your concerns, your questions. That's what they're there for, essentially. In the literature, the research literature definitely shows a generation gap. And if you look at time trends at research over patients' preferences for being involved in their in their medical visits, that's I mean that's changed over time. We did a big study where we looked at literature going back to. I believe around 1970, and we saw a big difference when we just looked at the different decades. And I think, I think a lot of that has to do with the availability of medical information. I mean, it's a very different world that that we live in and that we have lived in for the last what probably 10 or 15 years in terms of our ability to access medical information. I think that that's part of it. Um, I don't know if that's all of it, but I think that that's definitely part of how why we see that that generation di- generational difference. And so, Karma, being the author of 89 peer-reviewed publications and you know co-editor of two Oxford texts on healthcare communication, for anyone listening who's then saying, okay, communication is important. I've learned that. What are a few highlights, I guess, of, of what you've learned um, that you can share with our audience, you know, just to keep in mind all the time to ensure that their communication is most effective when speaking to their healthcare team. Sure. So I think in addition to those things we talked about with the PACE acronym, I think are really important, but a couple of other things that I'll, that I'll bring up that, that come from both my research and others' research is number one is that when we think about needing to get questions answered or get some sort of emotional support is that it's really important to be explicit in doing that. So we've been talking, we've all been talking about asking questions and things, and sometimes patients will think they've asked a question, but what they've really done is they've just made a statement. So they maybe there's lots of examples of this where a patient might say something like, well, I don't really know what my prognosis is. So in the patient's mind, they're thinking, I've just asked a question. But the doctor just hears that as a statement. And there's good evidence in the in the literature that doctors are much less likely to attend to these things. We call them cues, really not direct, very indirect or kind of implicit ways of trying to seek information. Or a patient would say something like, you know, last week was rough, but I'm okay now. The doctors, oh, well, you're okay now. We'll move on. But where is that patient's really seeking something? So that's where I think for patients it's really important to think about how you choose your words and that when you do have these questions or concerns that you are very explicit because you're just more likely to to get a response from those. Another thing I wanted to talk about a little bit more was the, I've done a lot of research on how the Internet and doing Internet searches impacts doctor-patient communication. And I actually started doing that research about at the beginning of my career, so about 16 years ago, and it has changed a lot 
in that time. I think when I first started doing it, um, a lot of people were getting information from um, things like blogs and message boards, which I know still happens today, but today there's great resources out there, um, like the one that you've, that you've talked about that you guys have at LLS for patients to be able to, to know that they're getting credible information. So one of the things that is really interesting when we think about this, all this information that's come out is that it used to be that doctors had what we call both legitimate authority and expert authority. Legitimate authority means the doctor went to med school for four years, went to residency for three to five years, maybe did fellowship training, has been practicing for five, 10, 15 years, right? That's the legitimate authority. They are the doctor. They pass the boards. Then there's something called expert authority. So expert authority is the doctor has the knowledge. Some of the research that my colleagues, colleagues and I did looked at how the availability of information on the Internet has kind of separated these two types of authorities. So even though I might be able to go online and read the same articles off of PubMed that my doctor does, and, and to get some of that expertise that maybe the doctor has, I still don't have that legitimate authority. And so what, what we found is that patients who look up Internet information and who take it into their doctor say that they see the doctor as a legitimate authority but not as an expert authority. People who don't look that up are still seeing the doctor as the expert. And so – and so, okay, so that's kind of from the patient side, but from the doctor side, I mean, you've probably heard this. I know there's a meme going around. My students were telling me about, um, you know, your, your five minutes of Google searches doesn't equal my 20 years of experience as a doctor or something like that. <laughs> so doctors often feel frustrated with this, with patients reading things online and getting misinformation. So the things that I would recommend is that if you have looked up online information, sometimes it's things like that maybe they're not sure what the doctor's going to think about it, like some sort of complementary or alternative approach, that you go into that question with a collaborative approach, with this idea, again, that, you know, I'm an expert in myself, and I've looked these things up, and now I want to get your opinion on them. What I think is really hard for physicians and, and where we see negative outcomes is where patients come in and they just say, you know, I've read this online. I want it. Right. They, they, the, the patient doesn't really recognize the doctor's legitimate authority. So thinking of it collaboratively, being explicit in, in how they, they ask that again, using those explicit questions also not overwhelming the doctor with information. So doctors love to to tell me about, and this doesn't happen, I don't think, quite so much anymore, but it used to, the patient who would come into the office with, like, a huge ream of printouts off of the Internet and say, I want you to look at all of these. And the doctor thinks, oh, my gosh, I've got, you know, 10 other patients to see this afternoon. I don't have time to do all this. So not overwhelming the doctor with information. And then lastly, I think it's really great if a patient, especially, you know, maybe in a first visit or after a diagnosis, either a patient or caregiver says to the doctor, where would you recommend we go to read more about this? What, what resources do you think are good? And, and seeks that advice from the doctor about what Internet sites are, are credible. That's all great information. Thank you. 
Thank you so much for joining us, Karma, and sharing how doctor-patient communication serves as a major component of the process of healthcare, and how effective communication can be a source of motivation, reassurance, and support. For anyone listening who would like assistance um, in developing their own personalized questions, you can call an information specialist at 1-800-955-4572. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to The Bloodline with LLS. We can be found on iTunes and other great podcatchers. You can subscribe at www.thebloodline.org. Be sure to check out our archive section on our website for previous podcasts. Be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. Keep up with LLS by following us on Twitter at LLSUSA and Facebook at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Until next time.